The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And a big welcome to everyone, and those online, those here in the room. This is our week four of our Buddhist studies class on Sila, this development, this interest in moral sensitivity. And uh, I know I, every time we use that word morality or moral, there's probably on some level, some part of the body and mind is cringing. <laughs> because, you know, we've all, probably all of us, have experienced this sense of morality being imposed on us. You should, you shouldn't, you're bad. And, uh, you know, we've got the residual trauma of that judgment, not living up to some standard, including our own, of course. So we have to keep reminding ourselves that it's always about freedom. It's like we're interested in this topic because we're interested in the unshakable release of whatever it is that burdens the heart. And so we're checking it out. By cultivating moral sensitivity, do, does the heart find its way toward more freedom? Oh, a lightness, a beauty. And I love that uh, in the tradition, that sila is considered an unmistakable scent that rises all the way to the heavens. But we kind of get that, you know, when we see somebody who has a lot of that integrity, not some tight, moralistic self-righteousness, but just that deeply embedded, integrated care, you know, not wanting to cause harm, and not this sort of self-sacrificing, you know, here to save all of you, but I don't mind if I get flushed down the drain in the process. I mean, a real integrated sensitivity. And it's, uh, I mean, it's really good to have radar for those people because they're inspiring, really. Just that kind of care, not as some stance, but just like a, it's a living, Thing. Sila becomes a living thing because it's, a, it's like that circle when we talk about generosity or dana as that circle of learning how to freely give and receive. There's also that same kind of circle around moral sensitivity and sometimes we call it hiri utapa, that sort of wholesome conscience, you know, that has concern has an appropriate concern and regret about how, what a setup life is. Because, you know, we're animals, we have, we're, our lives are animated by desire. The desire for warmth, the desire for comfort, the desire for food, the desire for connection and affection and belonging and the desire to contribute, you know, to feel like we're contributing in some way. And uh, there's nothing wrong with these desires. It's just like 
it's as natural as a summer breeze or frogs singing in the pond or any other aspect of nature, right? We could say that all of nature is animated by desire. That would be as appropriate as any other way of talking about sort of the animating energy of life, you know, to call it desire. So here, but, but we're doing, you know, we are this movement of desire in an environment where we're bumping up against other movements of desire. And that's, that's why there's moral sensitivity. That's why it breaks, if we, if we cultivate awareness, sensitivity, it will break our heart. And especially the second precept that we're taking up in particular, starting tonight and just reflecting, you know, resolving to get interested, resolving to break through all the ways, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, one of the ways we deal with morality is we just imagine there's a baseline that I have to meet, you know, as long as I don't hit, as long as I don't kill, as long as I don't take your money uh, without giving you some service, then I pass and I don't have to be a morally sensitive person because I've made the grade and I don't have to think about it anymore, I don't have to be sensitive. But if we're really interested in freedom, all these little and big ways that we rationalize insensitivity have to be teased out of the heart. It's like, this is the, this is sort of the inevitable, you know, uncovering of spiritual life is that it's always forever in the direction of greater sensitivity. Even if we have nice sits from time to time where we feel quite distant from the world. The inevitable result of a nice sit is we return to this world more sensitive. <laughs> we feel everything even more so than we felt before. We sense everything. And that allows us to um, invest in this trust, invest, lean in to this moral sensitivity. Even though we can't figure out like how many shirts we should have or how much money we should have in our bank accounts or whether it's okay to spend, you know, it's like a tomato. I mean, it's it's always seems so strange that a tomato, an organic tomato, can cost sometimes six, seven dollars a pound, you know, and non-organic chicken can cost a dollar fifty a pound. Like, how does that happen? Well, it happens because of the lack of moral sensitivity, you know, and uh, the kind of care it takes to grow an organic tomato. And if we want, um, yeah, if we, if we want to 
if we like the trade-off, if we're okay with the trade-off of insensitivity and, you know, having more of this and that, but then we get a world like this and we get a heart like this that's closed off, that has sort of, it's really the ultimate deal with the devil, like that unconsciousness in order to have an abundance of shirts or an abundance of food or or whatever that deal is, you know, when we walk down these stores, grocery stores that are a lot like a warehouse, where we have like how many different versions of something salty and crispy are there when you go down that aisle? Or a sugary drink, a sweet drink, how many different versions of that do we need? Or breakfast cereals or, you know, this and that. And it really begs the question, like, well, the more that we have, have we gotten close to the end of desire? Because there is so much of that abundance, but we just want more and more. And so we feel, whether we want to or not, we're, we gravitate towards justifying having more. And we become we necessarily become more and more oblivious to people who don't have as much as we have. We can't actually care about them, bring them into consciousness, because it interrupts the movement of our desire to have more of this and more of that, to lock it in so it won't go away. So it's not even about having something, it's about locking it in so I can have it as long as I want to have it. And the, the thing we miss, because we're so busy doing that, is like, the obvious question would be, how's that working for me? And how is that working for our, all of us? Is it delivering what we thought it would deliver, which is well-being? Do we feel well? Do we feel safe? Do we feel at ease, personally and collectively? And you know, I think it's pretty fair to say the answer is no. <laughs> and yet, you know, we don't really, it isn't clear what the other way is. So then we get a teaching like around the second precept, which is a, not a, about a bar that we're going to make, a, a level that we're going to match or go beyond, but it's meant to be a never-ending contemplation undertaking the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given. And you can even bring in the, the principle of fewness of wants or contentment, contentment, as a movement towards freedom, not some kind of trick, but to, to really sense and I don't know if you could tap into it during the sit tonight, but it's really useful for us to get interested in contentment because it affects how we look at catalogs and how we check out other people's stuff. One of the uh, resources I sent in the email today, hopefully you got, everyone got it. Um, it's an article by Ajahn Sumedho and um, he gives this example like for the Buddhist nuns and monks uh, 
it's not the same for us lay people, but when you go visit somebody, you know, they might have an interesting thing on their shelf or an interesting book. But if you're a, a, a Buddhist monk, nun, you can't touch things unless somebody hands it to you to touch. You can't just pick things up. Unless I'm, hey, I want you to take a look at this clock. It comes to mind because somebody once gave Ajahn Semedo a really nice clock for his room. You know, I don't, I'm not sure what a really nice clock looks like, but it, you know, evidently it was a really nice clock, and it kind of begs the question: like, he used it in one of his Dharma talks. Like, is it okay to have a really nice clock? But it isn't about depriving ourselves, it's just about creating a lot of sensitivity about stuff that comes our way, stuff that we give away. So we're just illuminating that all those circles. Because when we bring in, when we um, create these structures, as long as we need them, right? Because morality like to have a rule, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been freely offered to me. That's just a construction. And it's not about clinging to it, it's about pragmatically using it <clears throat> to illuminate things. Like I, it's been very interesting when I see things left on the street. You know, somebody drops a pen, a nice pen, or whatever it is. Or, you know, um, Gabe knows this and people who've worked or volunteered for a long time, you know, sometimes, <laughs> surprisingly often, people leave nice stuff. You would think that wouldn't happen at a center around mindfulness, but <laughs> they leave nice stuff at the center. And then it goes in lost and found, and then three months later it's still in the lost and found. Every once in a while we'll bring stuff to one of those places like Goodwill or something. But it's always sort of an interesting question, well, you know, is it okay to take that? Well, no, because it isn't freely offered. And even, is it okay for the center to keep it, to use? And we've made a few exceptions, like nice shawls we keep, thinking that somebody who left it would might maybe see it and take it. But in the meantime, <laughs> other people will use it. And maybe a few umbrellas we kept, that have been left so that there's some extras if someone needs one. But it's just, it's not about like what the, what's the right way for common ground to deal with it. You know, we could probably go into business selling water bottles <laughs> after we sterilize them. But it's, it's just about illuminating those places in our lives where there's that tension. I notice it every time when and I go get a dessert, because often we'll buy one piece, you know, we'll go to the Seward Co-op and get a chocolate, one piece of chocolate tort or something like that. You know, and I, I just feel that tug. It's like, it feels very real, like a very real loss to consciously let her have the bigger piece. <laughs> it always feels a little bit like that hungry ghost energy of like, because you know, wins easy because I just have to make the slightest suggestion and she'll be very happy to let me have the bigger piece. <laughs> but I'm not that way. <laughs> it's very real for me. I mean, it's a real, it feels like a real loss. 
So those are the places to, to look at like, is there really freedom in this non-attachment and this generosity and this contentedness? And not to believe it because then we're back in that, you know, I don't know, the Victorian era has gotten a bad rap around, you know, that contrived morality that's on the surface. Um, but anyway, we get back into that sort of pretending instead of, well, this is about freedom, so I'm going to use the moral sensitivity in these five areas in particular, you know, undertaking the training to refrain from harming, to refrain from taking what hasn't been given, to refrain from sexual misconduct, involved in sexuality in ways that cause ourselves or others harm, using speech in ways that cause ourselves or others harm, including not speaking, right, when not speaking is a cause for harm for ourselves or others, undertaking the training to refrain from using any kind of substance in a way that clouds the mind in a way that might increase harm for ourselves or others. So it doesn't mean directly, absolutely, you can't have a glass of wine or something like that, but you have to be conscious, is this increasing the odds of being negligent in some way? So for the small groups tonight, I thought it would be really nice to, I don't know if people remember, but last week I, I talked about uh, bringing to mind, you know, all the different expressions of privilege in our life, comfort, affluence, health, you know, race, you know, just the different things that convey some privilege, some comfort, some safety and then, or power that we might have, and how that unavoidably, the tendency is for that to corrupt the mind in the sense that very soon after I have a little bit of safety, power, privilege, whatever, money, there builds in my mind the sense like, well, this is mine. <laughs> you know, this is my house, my nice house, not your nice house. I noticed somebody was tenting in Common Ground's backyard, um, you know, and I saw the tent and all the stuff around the tent. And of course, the first thought was, no, that's not okay, this is our yard. And it's true, you know, I, we don't want people, we don't want our backyard that we have for people to hang out, and there are a lot of community members that come and do their practice in the garden. We don't want it to be a campground for people who don't have a home, right? And that should break our heart a little bit, because there are people who don't have a home, and it would be a pretty nice place if you didn't have a home, and you needed to be in the city for some reason. But we're choosing to say, no, that's not okay. And it's like uh, all the different ways where we, my mind, you know, in these sort of moral, situations, the whole point of having the precepts and just cultivating moral sensitivity is not to take care of that problem on autopilot. We took the tent down, folded it up, 
packed it up as neatly as we could, stacked through stuff on the boulevard, left a note, sorry, can't be here, can't camp here. But not to have sort of like, tell our heart, I shouldn't feel anything, or I shouldn't feel like that's the right answer. Because it's not clear what the right answer, at least to me. But yet, whether we leave, allow that to happen, or we don't allow that to happen, it should break our heart a little bit. And the freedom comes in not having to defend some absolute. It's like that moral ambiguity, or I don't know if it's moral ambiguity, but the, the ambiguity about what's right and wrong, or how much, how much serenity should our garden have, you know, when is enough enough? Is one camper okay, but not 20? You know, we had this, if people weren't aware, there were a lot of campers, both in this lot that's just a few blocks from Common Ground that has some big semis now that the city council has prevented the semis from parking in the neighborhood, which they did for a number of years. And uh, so there was a big encampment there at Matthews Park, at Brackett Park at different times, along Hiawatha, so several right in this neighborhood. And it's just interesting how we relate to when the wider injustices and ills of our wider community start to get close. And this is the privilege I'm talking about. So one of the things you can talk about in this small group is just to notice what triggers that stinginess, that defensiveness, where we are drawing lines that we imagine are clearer than they actually are. This is my neighborhood. This is my money. This is my yard. We had some wasps move in to that little crack between the, the landing outside our front door and the door. So as soon as you open the door, there are wasps coming in and out, you know, just a few inches before the, the threshold of the door. So you just sort of put your first step is right where the wasps are going in and out. And so when and I, this is, I don't know, maybe two weeks in now, and just like thinking, yeah, well, we'll just encourage them to come into the side of that slab of cement, you know, where they're not, we're not in harm's way and we're not going to be triggering their defenses. And that all those attempts to sort of block and encourage them to come into that crack another way didn't work. Then we poured some sand, you know, and they could move the sand <laughs> surprisingly efficiently. <laughs> So the last, I just got a text from Wynn with some still wool, you know, in the hole that they're using to encourage them to find another way into their nest that's away from right in front of the door. And, uh, but these are just interesting, you know, just to notice all the, like, it's not fair. You know, you've got so many places to build your wasp nest. Why here? You know, it's not fair. And the same thing we had a number of these wasp nests. So the encouragement this week is to look at um, possessions, 
that we have and livelihood that we have and how we shop and uh, yeah, just uh, how we understand possession and ownership, including even like uh, we expect the park to be quiet and we walk through the park and it's not quiet. You know, it's like all these sort of expectations and demands. And then also how we relate to people, like in terms of stealing, just the more subtle ways, and you can begin to reflect in your small groups tonight, but how we look at people's possessions, how we look at people's bodies, like when there's attraction, like are we taking something, or even when we're conversing with someone and we just got a yucky feeling and we're sort of using the conversation to fill up the space so we don't have to feel what we're feeling. And just the different ways that we're taking somebody's time, not letting them go, <laughs> don't leave. I need you in my life right now because if you leave, I'll be left alone with this feeling and I don't want to be left alone. And we're not really being honest, like, could I buy some of your time? <laughs> you know, like a therapist. Where, you know, well, we at least have an honest relationship with the person. And again, it's so easy with all of these, uh, these, uh, precepts to use them as a setup for judging ourselves or judging others and just keep remembering that we're using them to illuminate places in our life because we're checking out we're not believing it but we're checking out <clears throat> if I bring more sensitivity into these sticky places like my possessions like money like how I earn my livelihood things that I see as mine. If I illuminate that, it will lead to greater freedom in my life. And that's what we're checking out. As opposed to, we're still gonna operate in these places where we have possessions or some things that are mine and some things that are yours. It's just we'll do it on autopilot, kind of following the stronger habit energies, but choosing not to illuminate just to run with it. And this is, you know, this is what we find, you know, people like Bernie Sanders and, and other politicians, you know, that kind of get into this class warfare, you know, that it's not okay that some people have so much and we need to do something, like tax them. And uh, I was just revisiting an article, uh, I think his name is Peter Singer, he was I know he's a professor at Princeton a while ago, and now I think he's back in Australia where he's from. But he's a philosopher, kind of a utilitarian. I'm not sure how he described himself, but he wrote an article, uh, and this is a while back, so I think it's even more true now, that with a, a certain amount of a tax, like I think it was around 25% on maybe the wealthiest 10%. So these people would still be very wealthy. There could be enough money to eliminate poverty on the planet. 
So, and, and he, it, it, with this kind of approach, it's like, it's like his article was basically saying, it's really a no-brainer. Like, because these people aren't going to really miss it. But that's not how it would feel subjectively to these people. Because when we have a lot, like I consider myself in the great scheme of thing, things, having a lot, but I would miss, like if su suddenly Wynne and I were forced to give half of our home to another family. Even though half of our home is a pretty comfortable existence, right? But to somehow just have somebody move in there and say, no, we really need a place and we're not going. That would feel like such a betrayal or an offense, like it's just not okay. And this is how we, we want to bring that sensitivity into these, this realm of possessions. And I'll just give a, a story from the suttas that I, it's kind of interesting, some of you have heard this before, but it's sort of this sensitivity to the nth degree. This is from the time of the Buddha. <clears throat> and I'm assuming that the Buddha shared this story and it involves, or a monk did, uh, a bhikkhu, a, a Buddhist monk, and some spirit or a celestial being. So this monk was somewhat oblivious and was really enjoying the beautiful smell of the lotuses. Seems pretty harmless, right? And this Dewa, this celestial being, appears and says, This lotus blossom which you sniff, though it's not been offered to you, is thus something that has been stolen. You, sir, are a stealer of scents. <laughs> and then the bhikkhu defensively says, but I don't take, nor do I break. I sniff the lotus from afar. So really, what reason have you to call me a stealer of scents? He who would uproot them by the stalk and consumes the pale lotuses, the one engaged in such cruel work, why do you not say this of them? And the Dewa, the celestial being says, a person who's ruthless and cruel, defiled like a work person's garment, to them, my words would mean nothing, but it's fitting I speak to you. For an unblemished person who's always pursuing this purity, right, the moral sensitivity, even a hair tip of unskillfulness seems to them as large as a cloud. Truly, O oh, celestial being, you know me. You have concern for my welfare do please speak again whenever you see such a thing. Now, how do you think the Dewa is going to respond? I don't live to serve upon you, <laughs> nor will I do your work for you. You should know for yourself how to go along the good path. Now, this is just an example of like how we relate to beauty. Because it's like watching a beautiful sunset, you know, and we're if we're a little bit or a lot oblivious and just indulging, unaware of the ephemeralness of the beautiful sunset, then when the sun dips below and the 
it's no longer as glorious as it was 10 seconds ago, there's loss and we're craving the next sunset, you know, or getting up a little bit higher so we can get it back, you know. If I just get to the top of the hill, it's still the sunset. You know how you do that? It's sort of, oh, this guy's so beautiful. And then at our, we see this at our retreat center, you know, because there is a hill on the east side of the property with no trees in front of it. So you can see, the, and then you want to get up there because then you get another, really, you'll get 10 or 15 more minutes of it walking along the eastern fence line. And that's greed. And it's not maybe stealing somebody's shoes, but it's like, it's, it's reinforcing this hungry ghost that when I have, when I consume, then I'm going to be happy, then I'm going to be safe, then I'm actually going to have something that I can count on. But what we have is that slippery slope of needing more and more and more. That's why people who have a lot will fight just as hard, maybe even harder than people who have very little to keep what they have. That's why a lot of us, you know, when we've been in places where people comparatively don't have a lot, are kind of shocked by the generosity of people who have, compared to us, very little material possessions. It's like, how can they do that? Be so generous when they're kind of more, so much more on the edge than I am. It doesn't make sense unless we start to pay attention. What does it feel like? Like, now that I've said it publicly out loud, I'm gonna really look. Let's go get a piece of cake tonight. <laughs> no, but really, like, look at those places of stinginess and really illuminate them. And again, if it's really about freedom, then really check it out, let's check it out. And in the small group tonight, you can just bring to mind, you know, places where you've seen that relaxation of the hungry ghost and how much freedom there was. And then places where you've doubled down on being the hungry ghost and how that really didn't end up very well, didn't really work very well. You know, there was a chance, there was a moment that would have allowed for very beautiful generosity and you kind of felt it, but you didn't follow up with it. You kind of, the older habit, maybe the deeper habit of being stingy, being afraid. I mean, perfect place is like, we think just because we've decided it's best not to give the person asking for money on the side of the road money, we assume that we can't even have a generous interaction, like make eye contact and say hi, or have a good day, right? It's like, no, I can't have human contact because then I'm gonna feel the stinginess or whatever it is that we feel in that moment. And to really like see it as a teacher, like is there a way for, every, for all of us to feel more alive, more free, more 
more good <laughs> than how I'm currently handling this, which is I don't really want to be there. How can I get through this intersection? I caught myself going a little further, you know, burning more fuel to avoid an intersection where I know somebody's there waiting because of that unpleasant feeling. It's like consciously choosing not to be a morally sensitive human being. And so what does that lead to is living in my community, but being afraid to be in my community because of what it entails. How does that feel? Does it feel good? You know? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.